I want to take you back into Romans chapter 12, and um, very grateful for the opportunity to, to speak again this week. As you know, our baby was due um, and hasn't yet arrived. So we had um, Jeremy waiting on tenterhooks this weekend, unsure whether he was meant to be preaching this Sunday or whether I'd be doing it. We did actually prank call him last night and pretend that C had gone into labor just to see how he'd react. <laughs> Disturbed him for a brief moment or two. Um, but I'm here and I'm grateful and uh, I want to read to you the first eight verses of Romans 12 just as we did last week and we're going to bring this to a slightly different focus today. So Romans 12, chapter 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now last week we uh, began a little series, a short series in Romans 12, and um, we anticipate Jeremy's going to continue on in the rest of the chapter in the next couple of weeks. And the reason for... teaching just this one chapter in the book of Romans is this, that as I explained to you last week, Paul's letters move from doctrine in which he lays out the beliefs of the Christian faith, and he does this in a very full and um, comprehensive way in Romans chapters 1 to 11, because he'd never visited that particular church. So he spells out so much of what we believe the gospel is, and it's an extraordinary letter. But very often in his letters, he moves then from that kind of what we call orthodoxy, right belief, into orthopraxy, the right practice. How the faith is then worked out in the life of the individual believer and in the life of the congregation as a people. And it seems to me that um, given that what has suffered most this year is that kind of second part, the orthopraxy, we've been unable to practice the faith fully. It's right that as we begin to kind of reboot church life, that we focus primarily upon that. And we felt that it was right and helpful for us to do so, not least because this chapter puts a finger, as it were, on a number of very important issues for us that seem extraordinarily pertinent to the life of our church, as you'll see as um, the next couple of weeks unfold. And really what, this chapter, what we see in Romans 12 is how the Christian faith it begins with the belief about Christ as your Savior. Therefore, he says, I, I, by the mercies of God, I present your bodies. But this moves very quickly into that passionate response of thankfulness to God, that he is such a savior. And then the life of the believer is one of working that out in practice and in, uh, in service of God. So Paul moves the believers, the Christians, towards this goal of living 
active, serviceful lives, lives in which you are devoted to the service of Christ and his people. And how does he do it? And what we saw is that, first of all, he, he does it by this summons, this great summons at the start of this chapter. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, he says, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And it seems to me that the reason why he puts his finger on the body there as a living sacrifice rather than the mind or the, or the spirit is because he wants us to exert ourselves for Christ. He's speaking here about the action of service that follows from the fact that you've been saved, that you've become a Christian. Jesus did not save you merely to put you on a shelf like an ornament. He saved you in order to make you useful within the kingdom. And this is also underlined, by the way, in what he describes here as your spiritual worship. The word worship there is a Greek word, latreia, which means something like the temple um, service that the priests would engage in. It's normally used about the temple priests who were doing the sacrifices every day and the various offerings and the drink offerings and so on, who were going about the business of the temple. That was their service or worship. And it's the same word that Paul uses here. So immediately we understand we're in the realm of activity. Present your bodies. You've been saved. You've been saved to be useful for Jesus. He now, he now has taken possession of you for service, that you can now serve him within his kingdom, within his temple, which is the people of God. Another thing we saw, of course, was that Paul then gives us a theology for this, the theology of the body of Christ. He says that the church is not like a body, but it is the, the body of Christ. And of course, we understand that within your body, ideally, every part of your body is functioning and alive and well. It is possible for parts of your body to become lame or nephrotic, where parts of the body begin to die and decay, and this can be very dangerous. But in an ideal, healthy context, the body has every single part functioning. And this is where Paul gives us a theology to understand that no Christian is redundant within the kingdom and within the church. Every person is, a, is as it were, a kind of a body part within the kingdom which is a strange but radically mind-altering way of thinking of yourself within the church. You, there are no passengers. There are no observers. Everyone has a role to play. And we want to, kind of, we want to exhort and to stir up those gifts again within the life of the church. And then he brings us to this particular idea that we have these spiritual gifts. And this is what I want to focus on today. And particularly you see in verse 6 where he says, having gifts or charismata that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So having spiritual gifts, let us use them. Now this is an extraordinarily important idea within the New Testament. One of the things that you see is the kind of democratization of spiritual service. That whereas in the Old Testament there were just a select number that were called the priests. A portion of the nation set aside, and within them only an even smaller portion who were directly engaged in serving within the temple. When you move to the New Testament, something very different happens. The Holy Spirit falls upon the people of God, and every single individual within the kingdom is gifted and anointed to serve Jesus in some way, shape, or form. And this is something that's underlined in a number of passages. I think, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, every single individual Christian has been given the gift of the Holy Spirit in the form of spiritual gifts. For what? For the common good. In other words, for the good of God's people. Every Christian is anointed in some way to serve the people of God. 
This is something that Peter says also in one of his letters. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. God's grace has flown to us in the gifts that he's given to us by his spirit. Now he says, steward them, which is to say that you can have something in your possession and you can use it or not use it, or you can use it well, or you can use it badly. That's what stewardship means. It's the responsibility that's upon you as a responsible agent to use what God has put within your possession. We recognize that we have a stewardship when it comes to our relationships, to our money, to our time. But here what the New Testament says is every single person who comes to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receives his Holy Spirit then has a stewardship because you have received spiritual gifts. You've been set apart for service of the kingdom. And so in this way, The democratization that I'm describing is that every person within the church is now a priest. And everyone has a service to offer. Now, before we take this apart a little further, I just want to underline what a powerful and radical teaching this is and how important it is in the modern age in which we live. I think one of the greatest sicknesses of the West in general and then of Western Christianity in particular is the way that we have so been gripped by individualistic thinking, individualism. And you see how this is true in society at large. We've been splintered off from a sense of community and family and turned into individuals pursuing personal selfish goals. We even, this has transformed everything, including even our definition of what marriage is in this day and age. Marriage is only good insofar as it meets my needs. Think what a radically different and new way this is of thinking, thinking primarily in terms of the individual. And one of the problems with individualism is that it, it's bled into spirituality. It's why people use phrases like my truth, my spirituality. We imagine that your spirituality can be something unique and bespoke to you in the sense that you are a kind of deciding agent who gets to choose what you do and do not believe and what is and is not true and you can concoct your own version of spirituality this is the way modern westerners think isn't it which is why we have a little bit of this and a bit of that and we're not interested in organized religion we see that as something very um, dangerous and we rather just want to make the individual the all-important thing and of course individualism has then given birth to consumerism and consumerism expresses itself within every dimension of our culture, but also within spirituality again, and within the church even. So that Christians approach their faith very often through the lens of what this is delivering for me, and their church through the lens of what this church does for me, and if this church is no longer meeting my needs, I move elsewhere. Now, what I'm describing should be very familiar to you, because I think this is the natural way our minds now move. But we have to understand how radically new this is, and how destructive this way of thinking is, to so many aspects of life together. And the reason why I'm putting my finger on this is because I think that when we have a deeper and adequate knowledge of spiritual gifts, really it helps us put these things in their places. First of all, it speaks to you as an individual. The Bible does affirm individuals. It says God has saved you. He's interested in you. He's given you as an individual specific spiritual gifts. But it doesn't leave you there In individualism, it calls you back into the community and says the reason why God is interested in you and has given you specific gifts is that you might then be a blessing to others. Can you see the radical call there and the way that that changes the way you think about yourself? You are not the end and the terminus and the purpose of life in and of yourself. Christ and his people are. 
And he has saved you that he might call you into the people of God. When churches grasp this, life begins to take place within the church family. Now, I want, therefore, to look at what I think is an extraordinarily important teaching within the New Testament, this teaching of these spiritual gifts. And we're going to ask a few questions this morning. And the first is this. How does Paul see these gifts being used? What does it look like in practice? What did he have in his mind when he said to the Roman Christians, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them? What did he imagine that would look like in practice. And the thing I want you to understand here is that I think we need to avoid a narrowed understanding of what spiritual gifts look like in practice that is confined to the worship service like this and maybe even just a specific moment within the worship service. Now the reason why I say that is because I thank God that in the last sort of 70 years or so, There has been a resurgence, maybe even further back than that. We can trace it back to the beginning of the Pentecostal movement in the early 1900s. There's been a resurgence of emphasis upon the spiritual gifts. And the church has been shaken out of the mold in which you had just the preacher and then a crowd of religious and pious people going about their their life as individual units and brought us back together into the life of the body, what it means to be a spiritual family, what it means for everyone to have a spiritual gift. And I thank God for this. But if you've grown up as I have within charismatic circles in which this teaching is celebrated and praised, it's very easy for us to form an imagination that spiritual gifts only belong within a certain kind of setting where we, where we maybe have certain types of music or a certain way of conducting the service and a certain moment within the service where spiritual gifts are, are freed up to be used. Now, I'm not saying any of that is wrong. I think it's helpful. But bear in mind, of course, that in the New Testament, you know, they, they probably didn't have worship leaders. They certainly didn't have the keyboard with the synthesizer. There are certain things that we've become, we've attached to the use of spiritual gifts that actually were not there, present within what was probably a house church meeting in the early New Testament where they were singing a cappella and lots of just informal conversation going on and all these kinds of things. So what I want to do, what I want us to think, therefore, is to move away from just a narrow view of what the spiritual gifts look like and how they're used within the context of the church. Let me give you a few phrases that I think can help free you up from that way of thinking. The first phrase is formal and informal. Think about how a spiritual gift can be used formally, and I think an example here might be teaching. The spiritual gift of teaching has a formal place within the pulpit and within similar contexts where the gift of teaching is used to form the church. And this is obviously there within the New Testament and very important. Christ himself used that gift. But the New Testament also shows us the informal way in which the gift of teaching can be put to use. I think, for example, do you know the story of the Ethiopian eunuch returning from Jerusalem with the scroll of Isaiah, he's purchased this expensive handwritten scroll of Isaiah. He's reading it in the original Hebrew as he travels back to his native land. And Philip, the evangelist, comes alongside him in the chariot and he asks the question, what does this scroll mean? And he begins to teach him the gospel through the lens of the prophet Isaiah. That's the gift of teaching, but it's not being used in a formal context, it's being used in an informal one. Similarly, when um, there's a preacher called Apollos who is understood 
um, in the book of Acts to be a very dynamic, powerful young preacher. He has an extraordinary gift. But unfortunately, that gift isn't paired with accurate understanding of the gospel. It's very often the case, isn't it, that people with the most powerful gifts have very shallow understanding. It's a tragedy. But this is certainly what was true of Apollos. There he is, using his gift, but also not preaching the right gospel. And so Priscilla and Aquila, this married couple who were dynamic, powerful ministers within the kingdom, they take him into their living room, they sit him down, they're like, let us explain to you what it is you should be preaching. And he he understands the gospel properly and fully for the first time, and then he's unleashed to great effect within the life of the church. But you see, what is being used there is the gift of teaching in an informal setting. And this is everywhere in the New Testament. The formal and informal, and we can apply that across all of the spiritual gifts. Another phrase to help you here would be public and private. Some of the gifts are are designed to be used publicly and, and can be used to great effect in a public context, on the microphone, as it were, within the gathering. I think about a gift like exhortation. Exhortation is a gift that can be used publicly. But exhortation can also be used privately. The word can mean encouragement. It can mean coming alongside somebody and just giving them a word that helps them through the next season. A friend or another person within your home group or someone that you just happen to bump into over a cup of tea at church and then you, you end up being the exhorter to them. Or someone who's wandered away from church and you go and challenge them. Hey, I've noticed you've not been around lately. That's the, the private use of the gift of exhortation at works. Can you see what I'm saying? Can we use formally, informally, publicly, privately? Another pair of words we could say here is powerfully and in weakness. In the New Testament, the gift of prophecy sometimes is so evidently present within certain individuals that they are called prophets. Agabus predicted a famine that would that hit the Roman Empire. The four daughters of Philip the Evangelist, who I've already mentioned, are called prophets. But not everyone in the New Testament who uses the gift of prophecy is called a prophet in that way. In fact, in the book of uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul says that all of you, one by one, may prophesy. And he's speaking to the church there. Probably 50 or so people gathered in the living room. He imagines enough space like we have in our upper room meetings where if you choose, everyone can speak. And that's no longer the same powerful dynamic gift that existed within certain individuals who were called prophets, like Agabus. But it is the gift of prophecy operating in perhaps a lower and lesser sense within the life of the church. Now what I'm trying to help you see, therefore, is that I believe it's useful for us to understand the spiritual gifts operating in different levels and in different contexts. Yes, there's a place for the more formal use of the gifts in a public way and perhaps even a powerful way within the gathering of the church week by week. But there's also the unleashing of the gifts that are used in all of our interactions midweek as a church family. I even maybe go so far as to say this, that every interaction that you have with a brother or sister in Christ exhibits something of the spiritual gifts that you have and possess which is why you have to be in and working through the body fully integrated in the life of the church does this make sense so when paul says when i ask the question how does he imagine these gifts being used i think part of the answer is together when we're worshiping god but the the rest but most of the most of the answer has to do with the life of the church as it's taking place outside of our meetings I find that tremendously liberating and encouraging to conceive of it that way. 
That's our first question. How does he imagine? Here's our second. Why does he use this particular list of gifts? So here he lists seven spiritual gifts, and we'll go through them in a few minutes. But why does he use this particular list? What, what, is this, are these the spiritual gifts that are available to us? And actually, I think it's very important here to understand that this list is not exhaustive. The, the New Testament has somewhere between 21 and 27 spiritual gifts that are listed. And the reason why I don't know is because it partly depends how you count and whether some of the lists of things happening in the church, whether you recognize that those are spiritual gifts or not. But let's say it's 27 gifts listed in the New Testament. That's a lot, isn't it? And even that, I do not believe, is exhaustive. Now remember the analogy that Paul wants us to carry in our minds when we're thinking about the life of the body, which, the, the analogy of a body, of a human body. Think about this. If I were to ask you to name the parts of the body, what would you say? You might say, you know, head, shoulders, knees, and toes. You might focus on the major organs, the brain and the heart and the lungs. And in this way, you'd kind of capture, in a broad brush sense, what the body is made up of. But then it would depend if you're a slightly more, um, you know, slightly more um, detailed person, you might drill down and talk about fingernails and eyelashes, mucous membranes and nostrils and things like this, you know, the various parts that we have in our body that we don't usually give much attention to. But even then you wouldn't have exhausted the options, would you? Because you could go down further, you could talk about red blood cells, you could talk about neurons, you could talk about the proteins, which are the basic building blocks of your body, so that every protein is a body part, in a sense. And I think spiritual gifts are a little bit like that. There's a sense in which we can talk in a broad brush strokes about the major gifts that are operating in the body. Perhaps that's what Paul has in mind here when he lists these seven. But that doesn't, that doesn't categorize everything that happens in the life of the church. And it's possible that, you know, spiritually speaking, the gift you possess is an eyelash or a mucous membrane. Who knows? You see what I'm saying? Like there's a sense in which, you know, we, I think all of us can identify with at least one of these gifts, but that doesn't, that's not the whole story about you. Not, not even close. There's so much more. It's a bit like these personality tests, isn't it? We try and group people, if we're doing Myers-Briggs, into 16 types of people. And everyone who has shares your four letters, you're exactly like them. No way. Of course not. There's infinite variety, and I think something like that happens within the life of the church. There's infinite variety because God has made you unique. But having said all that, it seems to me important that Paul does focus upon these seven particular gifts, and that there's something interesting about that. Maybe they represent the core functions. I think as we go over them, you'll begin to see how the church cannot survive with all of these gifts, and that when all these gifts are present, the church is often doing very well. So maybe they represent some of the most important things that, that function within the life of the body. I think that's probably true. I find this list interesting, by the way, because it, it does also include the mixture, as so often is the case in the New Testament, of what we would think of as supernatural gifts and then just natural. Think about something like serving. In what way is that a spiritual gift? It's an interesting question, isn't it? It seems so, nor- so normal, so ordinary. And it helps us to obliterate these distinctions, by the way, between supernatural and natural it's not something the Bible does. Everything is supernatural because everything is of God and everything is of grace. So, the most basic message 
you know, we could agonize and discuss all day. Why these seven? Well, fundamentally, I think they're just examples. Very important examples, but examples nonetheless. And what Paul says about them, every single one, he says, if you've got this gift, his basic message is, use it. That applies just as much to whatever gifts you possess, even if they're not listed here. And so this brings us to the gifts themselves. I want to just run through them with you and just briefly kind of give some definition, some description that will help you understand maybe yourself a little better and what it is that God may have called you to do within the body of Christ and the dignity of what it is God has given you and the way he's called you to serve. Here they are. First of all, he puts his finger on prophecy. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, if you've read other letters of Paul, you'll know that it's, there's a reason why he puts this first. In Paul's mind, uh, the gift of prophecy was in some ways the most valuable and crucial that existed in the early church. Which is why in, in his letter to the Corinthians, he says things like this. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. A little bit further on in that same chapter, in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. Now, it's a strange thing, and an interesting and important thing that we take notice of here, that Paul puts this first and puts his finger on it. So what is this gift of prophecy? Now, the first thing I want to do is just say, listen, I think that what we often conceive of as prophecy is probably much too narrow a view. We tend to think of this gift as being prediction. And of course, in the Bible, there are occasionally predictive prophecies that come true. And some that have yet to be fulfilled, like the return of, the, of our Lord when he comes again. But most prophecy in the Bible is not predictive in nature. Most prophecy in the Bible is a spirit-moved kind of pressure on the soul of the prophet to take the truth of God and apply it to the present circumstances. If you read the Old Testament prophets, the great ones like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or the minor ones like Amos and uh, Zechariah and so on, if you take those books, most of what they have to say, the Holy Spirit is speaking through them, but he's not telling the people anything new. He's merely underlining what was written in the first five books of Moses, the Torah, and applying it to the present situation with a powerful um, application and dynamism, which is saying that this is God's word to us in the here and now. I think in a sense, then, we need a much broader idea of what prophecy is and what it looks like in the life of the church. When I was praying about what, you know, having just finished the, the, the short series that preceded this, what do we need to teach the church at this time? I felt a pressure on my spirit to open up Romans chapter 12. And the more I looked at it, the more I understood that it resonated with various things that um, I was speaking with, with the elders that we're talking about in the life of the church. And so I would say there's something prophetic even in choosing a series to preach on. And perhaps in every sermon you hear something that's prophetic. The, the application of truth to the present, to the here and now to our particular needs and circumstances. And one of the wonderful and beautiful things that can take place within the life of church is that this can happen in a spontaneous way. That when we gather, 
God puts his hand on you, that you must draw attention to something in scripture or that you feel God is, is underlining some truth for our benefit. And it seems to me that when you're reading the, the New Testament and you see that the gift of prophecy was operating in this way within the life of the church, that as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, that each of you may prophesy, that something like this is happening. The Spirit is moving people individually to say something that is for the present, for the now, for the life of the church. And sometimes those are more extraordinary and sometimes less ex- extraordinary. It seems to me that that's very much up to God, what he does and how he does it. And he says here, if prophecy in proportion to or according to the measure of our faith. Commentators are split on what that means. It could mean according to the measure of the faith, as in the Christian faith. So you say the Christian faith is our our standard and anything that you prophesy that contradicts with it is not of God. If that was followed, then we'd have no Mormonism. There'd be no Jehovah's Witnesses or Christian science. All of these were so-called prophecies that actually were contradictory to the Christian faith and therefore produced these heretical cults. According to the measure of their faith, perhaps. But it could also be like the measure of our faith as in something that you subjectively experience. I think it's possible to feel greater or lesser sense of confidence about what God is saying to you. When you feel it powerfully, you speak with greater authority and conviction. When you feel it less confidently, with less faith, as it were, you speak with a a reticence and a hesitation. I don't know which of those interpretations is right. I lay them both before you because I think both of them are true. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. And I just want to note this. I think in our day and age, there's a lot of stuff that, that goes under the name of prophecy that probably isn't. One of the great challenges is not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. You may have had experiences yourself within churches where you think that something that passed for prophecy was actually something dangerous something perhaps more like clairvoyance and you know the kind of you know something that's un, that's just not helpful i want to acknowledge that but there's a reason why in 1 thessalonians 5 paul says do not despise prophecy i think the reason is because we're always tempted to we're always tempted to dismiss or to ignore and therefore friends We have to recognize the central importance that it had within the apostles' mind for the health of the body, for the health of the church. That's number one, prophecy. Then he highlights service. Having gifts according to the grace, that differ according to grace given to us, let us use them. He says, if service in our serving. Now of all the gifts here, perhaps this is the least specific. The word just means exactly what it sounds like, service. Sometimes translated ministry, but essentially it's a kind of practical um, offering of your, your help and, and, uh, and time and resources for the good of others. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, this provoked the question, why does Paul list this as a spiritual gift? In one sense, it doesn't seem to me to be required that you be full of the Spirit in order to serve. But then, of course, we understand that it is a spiritual thing. Partly because of the way that this this gift is so manifestly evident within the life of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in its purest form. Do you remember how Jesus says of his life mission? He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, that the controlling 
mission of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ's life on earth was this gift, the spiritual gift of service, so that we no longer can imagine this to be something that we can discard or denigrate or ignore, but recognize that this is something extraordinary and mighty within the kingdom of God, that Jesus Christ said, I'm a servant. That's what I am primarily. When he was getting ready to depart from his apostles in that quiet room where they were enjoying a Passover meal and praying together and he was teaching them just before he was crucified. One of the most striking moments of that whole evening was when he took a towel and some water and got down on his knees and began washing his disciples' feet. And he said to them something very important. Remember, by the way, that washing feet within the culture was something that you would only give to a foreign servant in the house. If you had a Jewish servant, it was too menial even for them. It could only be performed by foreigners, right? You see this kind of mentality and attitude prevalent in many cultures even to this day, don't we? We have certain jobs that are only seem to be done by foreigners. Not in any way endorsing a mentality, but that was what existed at the time. And Jesus comes in and says, I'm taking that place. But then he commissions his apostles and says, this is, he, kind of, he kind of brands the church and says, this is what Christians are meant to be like. Everyone else is seeking the high places. You are to be servants one of another. You're meant to take the low place. You're meant to be in the, in the dirt, as it were, of the human mess of our lives, serving one another. And he says it very specifically to them in John chapter 13. When he says to them, having just washed their feet, he says, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. I don't think this was a a divine mandate that we should be doing foot washing for the rest of church history. Some Christians have understood it that way, and I give them respect. But it was more a cultural way of communicating the ethos or the truth of what he was doing, which is that we're here to serve one another, even in the most menial ways. And so far from thinking that this is, that this is a, a gift that we can kind of ignore or discount as something unspiritual... On the contrary, when you see it most perfectly and purely manifested only in one man who's ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then him commissioning his great apostles to enculturate this within the life of his body, within the life of the church, it seems to me that this is eminently a spiritual gift. And wherever you see someone in church life serving in a secret and hidden, quiet way, there you see the life of Jesus at work through them. I rather think, and it's only speculation, but I rather think that for such acts, there will be greater rewards in eternity. Then he puts, he highlights teaching. Prophecy, service, teaching. The one who teaches, he says, in his teaching. Now, I already hinted at this, but the gift of teaching operates at different levels within the life of Christ church. At one level, you could think of it as one of the most foundational gifts for the existence of the church. And I say this because if you trace through the, 
descriptions of the use of the gift of teaching throughout the New Testament, this is what you discover. First of all, that Jesus himself is called a teacher and that he engages in teaching. So this is how he begins to form a people. Second, you discover that he then tells his apostles to go and teach. Do you remember the Great Commission, how he says to make disciples, teaching them everything? Then you discover the apostles at work, beginning this work in the act of evangelism, sharing the gospel. And in places like Acts chapter 4, they're described as teaching the gospel through evangelism. So teaching is the gathering gift at work here to begin to save people. But then you discover a little bit further on, for example, in Acts chapter 11, where the, the church is formed in Antioch, that Paul and Barnabas went there to teach in order to then mature the church. So it goes from infancy to maturity because of the actions of these two men whose primary work among them was that of teaching. And perhaps I can capture this best, understanding the importance of this gift. In, in 1 Timothy, sorry, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, his disciple and protege, he says, what you've heard from me, in other words, the teaching, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Can you see how Paul's setting up a chain of transmission there for the gospel and for the apostolic doctrine? So he said he puts himself as the source there in the sense that he'd received it from Christ. He says, what you've heard from me, Timothy, you now entrust to faithful men, so it's gone from one generation to two to three, who will be able to teach others also, a fourth generation. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others also. And in this way, this is how Paul understood that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ would not only survive, but also thrive in the world, providing that there are certain men who feel set apart and called and gifted to take seriously this call to be teachers of the church. And when that happens and when that is taken seriously, the church of Jesus Christ survives and can flourish. But that isn't the only way that the gift of teaching is evident within the New Testament. I think, for example, the verse I read right at the start of the service in Colossians 3, but Paul says that the word of Christ dwell in you all. It's the plural. You richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the church of Jesus Christ is, is inhabited by a crowd of believers who each of us are growing in knowledge and all of us possess knowledge to a greater or lesser degree, but every single one of us has something to pass on to others. All of us can teach. We teach one another. Every time you have a conversation about the things of God with another believer, be it in a home group or in a friendship setting or in church, wherever you are, God can use you. And this spiritual gift of teaching can be in operation. I think that's an extraordinary thing to, to meditate upon. It means we need to take care of what our tongues say and what we spread. That's the gift of teaching. Then number four, there's the gift of exhortation. He says, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. Now what does this word exhortation mean? It's a word which means, it has various ways of translating. It can mean urge, beg, appeal, encourage, comfort. And basically, the, the original word just if you, if you break it down in a very literal sense, it means to call out. I think that's a very good way of depicting its meaning. It means that your speech calls something out of another person. 
whether it's calling out an action or an obedience or courage or something like that. You're calling out, you're using the gift of speech to bring action and activity from another. In other words, this gift of exhortation is the gift of forceful speech that affects change in others. Now, why, did we, why is this gift so important such that it's listed here among these seven? And the answer seems to me to be we are cold, stubborn, and recalcitrant creatures by nature. We praise God that the Holy Spirit's been given to us to stir and give us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. One of the other things that Christ has given to his church is the gift of speech. And God raises up certain individuals within his church who have a particularly powerful way of speaking. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's um, rhetorically accomplished or kind of eloquent. It doesn't necessarily mean that. Sometimes someone can speak with powerful speech just through sheer force of personality and power. And passion, right? But what it does mean, I think, is that I think certain individuals that they have a fire burning inside their heart. And that fire, as they go and speak to others, they, they spark fires everywhere. Now I can think of a list of people in our church who possess this gift of exhortation. People who seem to have the ability to speak in such a way that others respond and are stirred and empowered to live out the Christian faith. I think um, back in the 90s, there was a band, I wasn't into them or anything, but there was a band called The Prodigy that sung a, 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 sung a song called The Firestarter. I'm just a firestarter, a twisted firestarter. And I think that pretty much captures what the gift of exhortation is about. It's someone who just goes around like a, a spiritual arsonist just lighting fires all over the place, just stirring people up. And uh, God released that gift. It's an extraordinary gift. It's a powerful gift, and God uses it, especially when it's not, when it's not hypocritical, you know, when it's paired with, with integrity. It's powerful. Then there's the gift of giving. Now, he says here, the one who contributes in generosity and again, the question comes to us here, why is it listed? Because we understand that giving is a, is a duty, a calling, an act of obedience for every single Christian. So much so that I would even go so far as to say this, that if, if your heart has never, is never stirred with generosity toward God, it's very doubtful that you are a Christian at all. Because generosity toward God is the natural reflexive response of having received his generosity into your life. And the Christian immediately wants to give back to God and, and, and always this will involve finance as well as other means of giving back to him. Always. I'm not saying how much. That's between you and Jesus. But a Christian is somebody who must give because Christ has given to me. And everything I have is now his. So we understand that, that generosity operates at that level. A basic level which ought to be true of all of us. So why is he listing it here as a spiritual gift, the one who contributes with generosity? And I think the answer is this, that quite aside from that almost natural instinct of the Christian to be generous toward God, there are certain individuals within the church and within the kingdom whom God puts his hand on towards extraordinary generosity. Early in the year, we, or last year, I, can't, I, recall, or I forget now, it must have been last year, 
We looked at the story of the widow's might in Mark's gospel, how she gave two pennies, all she had to live on. That was the spiritual gift of, of generosity and of contribution that was working in that woman's life. In the book of Exodus, when God summons the people to build the tabernacle, the Holy Spirit is clearly at work in that because uh, Moses tells the people, take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. So there's a sense of this being a spiritual exercise. If God is stirring you to generosity, then give. And the result in Exodus 35 but it says that all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work of the Lord, that commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. The Spirit begins to move among the Israelites. And lots of individuals are so stirred with generosity that the result, we're told in the next chapter, is that they had more than they needed for the building of the tabernacle. Moses has to tell people, stop, that's enough, no more giving. There's also a beautiful little aside in Luke's gospel where we're told about um, the life of some of Jesus' disciples and it says that he was going about through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom. So he's going about doing his normal business. It says the 12 were with him. And then Luke starts to list some women. He says, also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa. Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. don't know if you've ever noticed that, but the ministry of Jesus was sponsored by wealthy women, patrons. I find that an extraordinary thing. That these, these women, who knows, maybe they, they manage the household finances within that kind of system, that kind of patriarchal way of doing the family and they had the hands on, on the coffers as it were and therefore they felt free to give money to Jesus however God arranged this Christ benefited from it so did we and Jesus the spirit moved the spiritual gift of contribution of generosity so that the ministry of Christ could could take place has God given you the gift of contribution it doesn't matter whether you are someone who's relatively poor or relatively rich that's kind of beside the point the point is only that in, before your father that you understand what it means to be moved by the spirit and led in this act of giving. Then there's leading. The word here means to stand before. And it means this. Let me just read you the verse. He says, the one who leads with zeal. Leaders, in other words, are always, if they stand before, they're always first. They're always the initiators, the one who are out front doing before others do. Perhaps the ones taking risks. And he adds this note. He says, the one who leads with zeal. The word means haste. It means that there's a kind of breathless hurry in certain individuals to be about the work of God and to catch others up within the work of God. That's what a leader is. I find that a really interesting way of thinking about leadership because so many people in our day and age want to think of themselves as leaders but so few people exhibit this breathless hurry to be about the work of God. You think, I don't have enough time or enough days to accomplish all that God's put in my heart. That's what a leader is. If you, if you think of yourself as a leader, and you say, why hasn't anybody recognized me as a leader? Well, I just obey this, and pretty soon people will recognize your leadership gift. Be about the work of God with this breathless hurry 
and you'll quickly emerge as someone who is a leader as others begin to follow you. And this brings me to the last one, the gift of mercy. He says, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Again, just like service, I think this is something that we see most manifestly evident in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He tells us in Matthew's gospel that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus wanted all his people to be stirred up with compassion that leads to acts of mercy and kindness. But it seems to me that the reason why Paul puts his finger on this as a spiritual gift is because there are certain individuals who do this more than just out of a sense of obedience and love. But he says with cheerfulness. There are individuals who get so much joy and fulfillment and happiness from helping the needs of others and particularly of the lowly. In the early church it seems that those individuals are set apart and called deacons. And maybe God has given you just such a heart of compassion, just such a heart of mercy. All I want to say as I bring this to a close, friends, I want you to notice, by the way, what a beautiful and complete list this is, even if it isn't exhaustive. One thing, you see three speech gifts, don't you? The gifts of prophecy and of exhortation and of teaching. Then you see two practical gifts of service and generosity so that everything is done and everything is provided for within the life of the church. Then you see leadership, absolutely crucial for the church to survive. And then we also see this, this gift of, of mercy, where no one is left behind. And nobody, there's, there's no sense in which this is only for the strong. But we're, 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 we're provided for in our suffering and in our need. And it seems to me that if, when we see all these seven gifts fully in operation, and I, I rather think that every Christian can practice at least one of these gifts, when you see all of these gifts in operation within the life of the church, I have no doubt that church is going to be a healthy church. And therefore, the mandate for us is to unleash these. Friends, what I wanted to say as I close is, is this. You may, and I, it's, too, it's all too common to see certain individual Christians who kind of opt out of engagement in this way. And I think there are, there are basically two reasons why we opt out. One is because we discount ourselves. Maybe you feel unworthy, you feel guilty, you feel unqualified or just lacking gifts. You can discount yourself for service and have a negative view of yourself and think I'm not useful to the body of Christ. And another reason is because we perhaps have developed a negative view of the church. So while you want to sort of dip in and dip out just to get what you need, you basically don't feel the call of the summons to engage deeply in the life of the church community. And it seems to me that what Paul says here when he opens this chapter and he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When he says this, he counters both of those instincts within us. On the one hand, he counters the instinct within us to discount ourselves and disqualify ourselves. Because he says, no, you, by the mercies of God, have been consecrated and made holy, a holy priest for God. It is not within your remit, it is not your business to disqualify yourself. Christ has qualified you and made you a priest, whether you recognize it or not. That's the gospel. The blood of Christ has made you clean. And this is true of every single person within the body. 
The only, the only circumstances in which that no longer can be said of you is, is when the church excommunicates a person because they've wandered away from Christ and don't want to come back. But if that isn't you, and I take it it isn't, then you serve. You are not disqualified. But it also deals with our negative view of what a deep involvement in church means because he says, listen, this is, this is what your calling now is. You are now a priest with a temple service and duty. Now enact it. If you will not, then it will not happen. You are called to this. And so friends, I want to stir you and encourage you to offer to the Lord what and who you are for the glory of Christ and the good of his people. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, I thank you that within the economy of your church, the activity and life of your church, there is no place for passivity. And that you have made every one of us dignified with usefulness to you. I pray that the wind of the Spirit will blow upon this church to set aside individuals for service in all kinds of different ways so that we will lack nothing of the gifts of the Spirit at Grace London. I pray, Father, that you will help us to take seriously the obedience of service as well, to lay aside excuses, to lay aside our own self-disqualification, and to be those who bring to the altar what we are, our very bodies, as a living sacrifice and a spiritual act of worship. God, do this among us, I pray, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.